there are certain hymns that remind me of places that I've been. And that one always reminds me of Roosevelt. It was one of Pastor Brian Murphy's favorite ones when we would do that during communion. And so I just delight in that, that if you're here right now and you have been saved by the gracious work of our Lord Jesus Christ and you repented of your sin and put your faith in Him alone for salvation, that He has given you His Spirit and you are here specifically to do His work. So He calls us home. And so, so I'm just always grateful for that. It just reminded me in the moment and rejoicing that we have uh, faithful uh, churches that are wanting to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you noted the theme of even some of the songs and also the pastoral prayer title this morning's message, How Great a Love. How Great a Love. 1 John chapter 3, our focus this morning is going to be verses 1 to 3. And let me read that before us to set it in our hearts and minds. 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John, last living apostle, says this, See How great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what will be. We know that when He appears... We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So Father, I pray that as we devote our attention to your word, these marvelous words, may we be ever encouraged to faithfully love you with our lives. Thank you. For loving us first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Lately I've been listening to a lot of hymns. And my my heart uh, has changed over the years. If you knew me before, I actually did not like hymns. Even as a young Christian, I did not like hymns. Because all the time that I heard hymns, I heard hymns with an organ. And as a kid, I always associated that with Dracula or um, um, with uh, funerals. Every time I went to a funeral, there was an organ playing. And so I always just like associated those things. But, but it, over the years, God had worked in my own heart to really actually listen to the lyrics. <laughs> what are you saying? And as I started growing in... And God started growing me in His Word. I started not only listening to what He was saying, what, what those hymns were saying, but also listening to the current, at that time, current, uh, what they would call praise and worship music. And I was like, man, this is, this is very shallow. There's not a whole lot of depth. As a matter of fact, I couldn't even tell you if I can endure suffering with listening to one of those songs when it's often all about me and not about the glorious God that we serve. And so, remember a transition in my life was when we went to the early Promise Keepers 1995 conference. And some of you guys might remember that. Um, I think they're trying to bring that back again. But at that time, in its early stages, all they did is sang hymns. And it was incredible to me because they weren't, there was an organ in there. It was like drums and and I was like, yeah, I like that. But they had a, a group of uh, a Maranatha band that was there, a, a bunch of guys leading. But we were in a stadium of 75,000 men. And when men sang those songs, all of a sudden, the truths of those words, I was sitting there gripped 
all the things that I was trying to learn in the scriptures that was being taught to me and being discipled in my own heart were coming alive. It's like, this is what we're saying? And I can remember going to one of the booths and buying a tape, yes, a tape, of the Promise Keeper music and bringing it home and just listening over and over and over. Now I have it in the MP3 playlist on my Amazon Prime. Um, same songs on my phone. I can bring them to everyone, man. I love, I love the hymns. They, they, they speak and they help us to put to song, to put our affections on display, the praise that God deserves. That is theologically sound. One of those hymns is, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. The author, Aurelius Prudenced, Prudenced, said, the first verse goes like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to my glorious rest above. I'm like, people don't talk like that. <laughs> Let alone when we sing, do we sing in this way? And the author wanted God's people to know Christ's love, that it is vast, it is unending, all-consuming. That he uses the ocean to help us think deeply about Christ's love. I could not imagine a better picture of God's eternal and unchanging love of Christ as depicted in a greater way than that of the ocean. Consider it for a moment in our time. If you've ever stood on the shore looking out at the ocean, you would understand immediately what we're talking about. And what that hymn is trying to describe of God's love for his people. Since the earth is made up of 70, uh, uh, 71% of the earth is made up of the ocean, it reveals to us a critical nature uh, of contemplating the love of God as seen in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is vast. It is unending. If you're in there, it, it is all around you. It is over you. You're in it. And if you ever had a chance to swim in the ocean, no, we don't live around the ocean, you would understand that you cannot get away from God's love, which is what the hymn writer is trying to communicate to God's people. Ever. It is unchanging. It is eternal, as we've seen through the Gospel of John. Forever settled in God, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is in that kind of law, that is in that kind of, uh, of relationship, of being uh, really caught up in, the, in a Trinitarian love, that the believer has true hope for whatever they face. True hope and motivation and the right motivation to be able to live out the word of God. Because when we are seeking to obey God and God is calling us to submit to his truth and to live his word out. He's not saying that we are doing that because we are earning his love. For we could never do that. Or, or when we disobey, now he loves us less. But instead... Instead, his love remains as certain as he remains unchanging. And there is true hope. It's not wishful thinking. There is our true motivation. It is a, the, the greatest hope that a believer can have in, in honoring God with their lives and submission to his truth. And it is the only hope that an unbeliever has 
It was the very theme that God used to break my sinful, selfish heart. To let me see my sin. That I hated Him. I wanted nothing to do with Him. And then I heard of God's great love in Christ. It melted my sin in my heart. And because of God, graciousness granted me repentance and faith and eternal life in Christ. I love what the hymn, the modern hymn says, Because of that there is no more for heaven now to give. There's no greater love than that of Christ. And, and this truth must lead us to holiness and faithfulness in our lives. And this is what, what John is trying to encourage the, the believers there that he is now ministering to. Now John, uh, the, the, the aged pastor, the, the one who is, like I said earlier, the last living apostle. The one who was entrusted to minister to the people of God, who sees all the things that are going around the church, and, also, and even within the church, uh, attacks from within, attacks from without, and then even the things that are going on in people's own individual lives, the struggles that they're facing, the temptations they're going through, the, 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 the hardships, the affliction, just life in the sin-cursed world. And he wanted them to understand and to grasp this great love of God. To know their assurance and their security is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he writes this to show them this is what life looks like for a believer. And as he does that, he, he, he develops three major themes throughout his letter. He deals with these... Three things, truth, love, and obedience. That's what 1 John is about. The truth, you have to have right doctrine, right understanding, and particularly that the, 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 the one who came, Jesus, in human flesh and walked this earth was none other than the Messiah. You cannot deny who Jesus is. If you deny who Jesus is, you do not have salvation. You do not have eternal life. And not only that, you are also called with truth, love. He says, uh, love for, for other of God's people. In, in, in the gospel, of, in, in John's letter, he's not talking about loving your neighbor. There is a place for that. But in particularly, he says, Christian, true Christian love will demonstrate itself within God's people. How they serve each other, how they give of themselves for the benefit of them to honor God in their lives. That is characteristic of a believer. Not only do you believe the right things as he lays out in in the Word of God, but also love one another and then also obedience. That you would live a life of worship in obeying God's Word, in submission to God's Word. And so here we come in the middle of this letter, so to speak. And as John is talking about these realities, is as if he pauses in the middle and says, let me just tell you this. For all the things that are going to go on, he just listed in chapter 2 right before this in verses 18, he talks about, he says, children, it is the last hour It's a critical time. The last hour is a time in which we exist as the church between Christ's first coming and second coming. And he says, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And he speaks of of those who were in their their midst. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. There was this reality in the church in which many people at the early times were following Christ, were were saying that "I'm, I'm committed to the Lord. But then over time... As, as if you've been in the church at all, which I think many of you have, over time you begin to see people just dwindle and fall 
and leave. In time, as I have always told you, and, I've, and I told you what others have said, time is always the best revealer. It just reveals exactly what's truly going on. It could be one month, it could be one year, it could be 10 years, it could be 30 years down the road. Time will always reveal truly what a person really is. Are they, do they truly love Christ or were they following him because of what they can get out from him? And John, John sees, sees this and he says, listen, you, even in the midst of that kind of thing going on in your midst, I want you to know that that does not change the love of God that He has for you. Even though it is painful, and even though it is hard, and even though it can be concerning to your own soul, Lord, I don't want to also leave in that way. Many have not only gone from the church, but also opposed. I think of Joshua Harris, a guy that many have followed. When he first started, I mean, the guy showed so much promising, great communicator, great communicator, an apostate, one who's trying to help deconstruct Christianity for those who have been hurt by the church, which is no Christianity at all. That's a reality. That's real. And so John is calling, he's saying, listen, a, a believer has these marks. They, they, they have the right doctrine. They, they, they live lives in consistency with God's word. Not perfectly, but, but there is a consistency and there's a trajectory that is more going up rather than down. And, and, and there is a love demonstrated to one another. And he says, and he pauses right in the middle of that, and he says, see how great a love of the Father? <laughs> it's like, wait, what? If you're following along, what John is saying here is like, you need to pause and you need to think that first and foremost is not about you, but about what God has done for you and is going to do through you. And that reality will be shown in your life. See, we will have battles with the world. We will have fight against our own flesh. We will see people leave the church who have once professed Christ and now are not only not professing Christ, but now opposing the church. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, John says, but that does not change the love the Father has. You want the greatest motivation for obedience, the greatest motivation for uh, loving one another, the greatest motivation for knowing and believing the right truth, especially in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, is the love of the Father that has for us. And I know in our time, you know, we, we're reformed in our salvation. We believe that, that God is sovereignly in control over our salvation, and I know in our time, we, uh, in, in our circle, sometimes diminish that area because it has been so abused. Everything is always love. Everything is done out of love. Don't judge me because you don't love me. Don't do this and that. It, everything, it's just been so misused. But yet, we could also err on the other side. When we see those things and see it wrongly, it doesn't mean that now we just jettison that God's love for us is insignificant. Because it's not. And this is what John is trying to say here. And so this morning, I want us to consider, as we go through this passage, two marks of a Christian that set us apart from the world, that give us hope to live for the Lord. And the first is this, Christians marvel at God's love. Christians marvel at at God's love. Consider again verse 1 where he says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. You see, John stops here to ponder the amazing love of God that he has given to us. And particularly that he has made us children of God. 
The words that John uses here shows us that he can't get past the astonishment of God's love shown to us in Christ. Notice the the love of the Father. He says, see, literally, it's a word, behold. Uh, It's used in Scripture so that it would cause people to take a a time to pause and consider the reality, this, this great reality. It is both a command and an exclamation. And John uses this to arouse uh, our attention, to notice this, to pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is not just something that is fluffy. But this is the core of why we do what we do. Why we believe what we believe. Based upon what John said, about believers, in verse 29, he says, man, we have the only true hope. He says this in verse 29, actually verse 28, we'll start, that now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. This is critical. He is saying this. The doctrine of regeneration has practical implications in our lives. The doctrine of being born from above, born again, that is our word that even Jesus used as he was discussing and talking to Nicodemus. You must be born from above. It was not a command to Nicodemus. It was a statement of fact that, and it was in the passive tense, that God must be the one who regenerates you in order for you to respond in faith A dead sinner cannot respond in faith or believe or make any kind of choice. They must be born from above. And as John ponders that, he sees, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us? Here, the doctrine of regeneration gives us true hope for change because we are born from above. God sovereignly saved us Believers will reflect His character. Since God is righteous and all He does is righteous, therefore those who are born of Him will also walk in righteousness. John John is is using parenting language to show that the child displays the characteristics of their parents. Just the other day, we were hanging out, and I, and I told uh, Sadie this. We're hanging out with their house, and um, Nick was here. We were eating, and Sadie was on the other side over here. And I can see from, from, from my left as I was sitting there eating, I looked over, and I looked at some of Sadie's expressions, facial expressions. I'm like, that's Carol. It was good expressions. But having to spend some time with you guys, and I was just like, and it's just and at that moment, and I share with this even in our, in our, in our discussion, I shared this, in that moment, it was, it was really neat for me. I was just like, wow, that is so cool. And then, I was, and then I was frightened by that because I was like, oh, that means my kids might be doing some of those things that I do. <laughs> then it was not so encouraging. They do. They, they have manner, my, my mannerisms, Joy's mannerisms, and they just re- start being reflecting their parents. And this is exactly when we are born from above, guess what? We will begin to reflect the character of God in our lives. And, and John marvels at that. Here the believer who is continuing to characterize of doing righteousness displays that he is a child of God because he is imitating his true parent, Christ, 
who is righteous. And John says, how great a love. Literally, what kind. Often, that word is often used of something that is admirable in character. It implies astonishment and admiration. If you've ever been to a planetarium, I know the first time I ever went to a planetarium, it wasn't a, a Christian planetarium, but you can go in there. And, and the one that we went to, it, it was like the screen was the whole room, basically. And you kind of like sit in these chairs and they kind of lean back. And usually that means trouble for me because at that time I was sleep deprived. And so that meant like instantly the moment I go there, it's like, gone. But not this time. I'm sitting there and we're looking at the universe in which God has placed us. And I'm sitting there going, whoa. Whoa. Like we don't even get to see that on a daily basis. And we don't get to see the things that are in the depths of the ocean. But God does. And it delights him. He said it was very good when he had made it and created it. That kind of astonishment is what John sees the, the Father's love for his own. One commentator says this, What glorious, measureless love of the Father. And this type of, of, of love is not this sentimental thing that, that, that wanes back and forth, but rather love in the, in the Scriptures, and especially the love of God, is a decision of the will to seek the highest good for the object of one's love, as one writer puts it. It is dependent on the lover's choice, not the receiver's worthiness. It is based upon the unchanging character of God. And John marvels at that, and he says how, how he has bestowed upon that. God graciously gave it to us as a gift. And as a gift, it is unearned. It is given out of the generosity of who He is. If, the, if God were not Trini, uh, the Trinity, if, if it weren't Trinitarian, there would be no love. But because God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is love. That's the only reason why we can actually know love. And here John says, he, he uses a tense in, in Greek grammar that speaks of, of, of something that is permanent. It is fixed. It, it abides in, 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 this, in this nature, in this way. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. A father's love does two things. One, it makes us children of God. And second, the world does not know us. Notice, this love that will take and make us. And he says here that we would be called children of God. First you need to understand that, that what John is saying here is this. That not all people are God's children. God must make you his child. Just because you live in this world doesn't mean uh, um, you belong to God. And just because Christ went to the cross to, to, to sacrifice and pay the uh, sin's penalty doesn't mean that that now has been credited to your account. And so we got to stop and pause and say, when we talk about the love of God... We're talking about the specific love that God has for His people. There is a love that God has for unbelievers. Theologians call it it's a common grace love. That God gives unbelievers, just like those who come to saving faith, the same opportunities he gives them uh, a marriage, he gives them family, he gives them um, uh, uh, the opportunity to work, display what he has done. Uh, these are all common grace things they can experience and know and share. He gives them gospel opportunities. 
But all that, that, that Christ has done for his people is true and yes and amen because he makes it so in them his righteousness is credited to their account. And, and this is what John is saying. He says, he's saying that not all people here are God's children. You, you become part of God's family and therefore a child when you repent of your sins and continually trust Who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, paid completely and fully for your sin at the cross. And then on the third day, he rose again. Apart from repentance, which by the way, he grants, and faith, which by the way, he gives. Apart from that, you cannot be a child of God. But John is writing to the church, to believers. And he's saying to them, man, look at this incredible love that we would be children of God. When was the last time you pondered that? If you've been a Christian for a long time, oftentimes you look at that, you're like, yeah, sure, okay, move on. But, But if you were to consider Again, which I think is, it is helpful for us to remember over and over again what we were like before Christ saved us. Just to help you with that, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So after John is the word ark, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians. That's how I remember that. Paul does a great job describing, as a matter of fact, chapter three, verses uh, ten all the way through eighteen, reveal our desperate condition. But even in, in chapter six, after he has talked about being justified by faith, he still reveals what our lives were like before Christ. In verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his sons, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And notice the description that Paul gives. He says, we were helpless. In other words, we couldn't do anything to earn God. We couldn't save ourselves. We wouldn't even desire or think that we could do that. Though everybody in their own heart thinks that they're good enough to earn their favor with God. He says, no, you can't. You're ungodly. You're, you, you, your life is characterized by everything opposed to God. You're a sinner. What you do transgresses God's righteous law. And then he says again in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, enemies. Now that, is, that it goes even further. So we could be, we could say to ourselves, okay, I see that. I see, yeah, I definitely am ungodly. I can see myself as helpless. I can't save myself. Yeah, I, and, and a sinner, my life is bent on doing the exact opposite of what God says to do. But enemy. And and for us to to understand this, I want to use, just by illustration, a a context right in in our time that that would help you see the severity of what John is trying to say and why God, in the backdrop of this, the love of God is so great. Imagine for a moment that you lived in Israel. 
and you take one of Hamas's soldiers that committed those atrocities. And that very soldier, you say, I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be my child. Which, by the way, first and foremost, they do need the gospel. They are the mission field. They need to know this. Here you have one who has committed most horrific crimes in our time that we are see. And now, not only are you taking this very one person and saying, hey, I'm going to hang out with you, but you're saying, no, I want you to be part of my family. You and I had the heart of Hamas before Christ saved us. That was us. We were terrorists at heart. We were treasonous. We hated God. We hated Christ. We wanted nothing to do with Him. We would dismiss His word. We would make fun of others. I'm talking to a brother who said, a brother in Christ who said, man, my goal was to try to see how many Christians I can cause to stumble and trip and, dis- and, and deny God's word. Now he's serving as a pastor. <laughs> That's what John is saying. He's out. can you imagine that? That God would see and take those who hated him and by his sovereign grace uh, bring about regeneration, a new heart that that would cause them to, to repent and put their faith in Christ alone for salvation and that he would now make us not just save us, which would have been fine, but part of his family. And by the way, that can never be taken away. At our worst, God rescued us. When we couldn't do anything to help ourselves, we, were, we weren't just unlovable, but we were His enemies. We were treacherous at heart. And he could have saved us without making us his children. But this is the, the, the thing that, that causes John to, to, to pause in, in, in all this discussion of truth, love, and obedience. He says, but wait a minute. Let me just tell you what motivates those things that are rightly so and that God expects of us is this marvelous grace that we have been given, this marvelous love. So this love makes us his children. It is not a, a title for, for a, a Christian. It is a fact. You are, if you have repented and put your faith in Christ, you are part of God's family. By the way, and if you're part of God's family, everybody who's part of God's family, which is what makes up the church, we will be together forever. But let's just real quick talk about further, how does that happen? And I want you to take, take your Bibles and go to John, John chapter 1. Same author, John chapter 1. He says in verse 9, as the apostle, as he introducing the gospel of John, he says in verse 9, there was, there was a true light which... Coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Which, by the way, John will say after, when he says that we would be children of God, this is the reason why the world does also not know us, because it did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many... As received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
who were born, by the way, that's again in the passive, God doing this work, just like you had nothing to do with your own birth, you have nothing to do with saving yourself. God must first move. And then He gives you, when He makes you alive, in that same instant, you now repent and put your faith in Christ. It's specific language, and we talked about this in the Gospel of John as we kept going through it. Beautiful. He says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation, John says, is the work of God. It is a gift, the right to become children of God. This is called, again, a spiritual rebirth. Once, once you were his enemy, now you are feasting at his table, as the hymn again says. Because you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah. It is a supernatural birth. It is something that happens from above. God is the one who does this. And John gives three negatives to show that salvation cannot be obtained by anything that we do. He says, first and foremost, it cannot be obtained by racial or ethnic heritage. In other words, you're not born into the family of God. He says that. Who were born not of Blood. That's what he's saying. And and remember, as he goes through this, Nicodemus thought he was part of the family of God. And Jesus tells him, no, you need to be born from above. You're not born into... A Christian, even if you're born into a Christian family that does not make you a Christian, you must repent and put your faith in Christ. So it's not out of out of out of heritage or ethnicity or anything of that. Second, it's not out of personal desire or human decision. Notice what, what John is saying again. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. It's not that all of a sudden you decided to follow Christ. You can't. It's the whole point of of being dead in your trespasses and sins. Somebody who is dead cannot respond. Just as if you were to take a needle, go to the morgue and poke somebody's foot, would they say to you, Ow! That's not possible. They're dead. You need to be made alive. So it's not out of personal desire or human decision, nor, as he says, of the will of the flesh. But it's not even also, thirdly, by any man-made system. Nor of the will of man. It's not by baptism. It's not by confirmation. It's not by church attendance. It is not by being a quote good person. At least I'm not as bad as the guy on TV. At least I don't do those crimes. That's that's you cannot be saved by any way that you would devise here on earth. And John says, "Here's the hope, but of God, but of God." So our spiritual birth is a supernatural salvation that only God does. And because God does that, and therefore we respond out of the gifts that He has given to us in repentance and faith in Christ. And the reality, again, is so clear. When John says this, he says, this is not just a, a, a title for you. This is actually a reality. He says this, that we would be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. My friends, that is amazing. You want to give people hope. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what John does. And I would encourage you to learn, um, when you're discipling other people, give them true biblical hope. Not wishful thinking. Not, yeah, that's going to pass away sometime. Not, you know, um, but rather, you are a child of God. You have been born from above. And the very one who has been 
who has caused you to be saved is the very one who will bring you to himself perfectly at the end. You will begin to reflect him. You will begin to make him known with your life. And when you do that, and when the watching world does that, there's a reason why they don't like you. (laughs) There's a reason why sometimes it feels like you are an alien in this world. Because once, beforehand, yeah, you had many different friends. And they all enjoy talking to you because you, you, you live the way that they live. You love the world. You live like the world. You were enslaved uh, to sin like the world. You were dead in your trespasses like the world. You were enemies of God like the world. You could not save yourself. You were held captive by this world system. Everything that it did and everything, all the values, all its priorities, and why you do the things that you do were all because of this world. We lived like we were God. But once the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again, the old life was severed. And now you live for Christ. Now you love Christ. And you love His Word and obey it. Now you are daily being transformed as you apply His, His truth to your life. Not, not in, in perfection, but in trajectory. Your life is showing a consistency. Even when you fail, you respond the way God says you need to respond. Now you have a new nature. Now you have a new status. Now you have a new family that's going to be endure in a greater way than the family that God has given to you here on earth. Remember when, remember when Jesus entrusted his mom to the Apostle John. Why not James, his brother? He had other siblings. And remember we said that what, you, what, what that teaches us is this, that the family of God, that God has given to us by spiritual rebirth, is more important and more precious, and it is in eternal than even our physical earthly family that God has given to us. Why the body of Christ is precious and why being a part as a member in the body of Christ is critical. Now you have the Holy Spirit who permanently dwells in you. Now you love the people of God, which is your new family. You delight in being with your family to serve them and also to be served by them. Using your gifts and the things that God has given you for His glory. And I love what, what G.C. Rawls says is to be born again is, as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind, a new heart, a new view, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, uh, which actually is true. You, the things that you used to love, you're like, I don't want that anymore. New fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to the things once hated, new hatred to the things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves, and the world, and the life to come, and salvation. And John says, this is why the world does not know you. Does not know you because, he tells us the reason, because it did not know Christ. Did not know Christ. We read that already in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It was a a basic theme in the Gospel of John. And what it reveals to us is this. Don't be surprised when the world does not receive you as one of their own because you do not love the things that that they love or do the things that they do. And this is also why as a church we we don't seek to, to, to... Witness to those around them, uh, us, by, by attracting them by the things they like. We're not trying to just get them into the, the building. If you want that, all you have to do is give free food. 
That's exactly what happened with Jesus. <laughs> Everybody wanted to hang out with him when he was like, hey, you're giving some free stuff? Sweet, I'm there. How about you become my personal genie? That's what they wanted with Jesus. My friends, that has not changed. It has not changed. What you attract them in, you're going to have to keep doing in order to keep them there. And it's going to constantly have to change because you're appealing to the flesh of men. The ends does not justify the means. God must do His supernatural work in their lives. And that means through the proclamation of His word, but by the careful instruction of the gospel and the scriptures, the Holy Spirit then begins to work in people's lives and bring them to salvation. And so John says, though the hatred of the world is harsh and painful, the love of God is far more superior and valuable than the love of the world. And that love is true and certain. You want the the greatest motivation to to love God, to to battle against your own flesh, to to, to withstand the, the world's hate and rejection because of your love for Christ? It is God's love for you. My friends, Christians marvel at God's love. Number two. Number two. And we're going to do some some quick editing here. Christians long for Christ's likeness. In light of that, John begins to go back and now say, let me show you what this, how this affects us. It, there, there is two things. One, it gives us uh, the love of God gives us a, a future hope, but also a daily impact. A, a future hope and a daily impact. Notice first a future hope. He says, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what will be. And we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is." He says, now, in this moment, it, here, immediately, we are children of God. Our, our true identity doesn't become when we go to heaven. It's already started at the moment of salvation. This is who you are. This is your new identity. This is exactly why John marvels at God's love. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, it has not yet appeared literally visibly or displayed or revealed openly. Though we are children of God, true. And that status has not changed. And we couldn't make ourselves children of God. What we will be like in the future is still veiled from our eyes, from our sight. As a matter of fact, really no one has seen this yet happen except the disciples when they saw Jesus rise from the dead. In which Jesus, now when he comes back, has the body of all all of his attributes now completely, rather than limiting himself, all functioning, which is why he walks through walls, appears, disappears. Now, he says, believers will one day receive a glorified body fit for heaven. You know what that means for us? I'm jumping ahead. I'll come back to that. My friends, Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees our death and resurrection with Him, and we will receive a body fit for heaven. He says, it has not yet appeared as what will be. Believers will will possess a glorified body. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection and what is to come. 1 Corinthians 15 Beginning in verse 49, just as we have, have 
born of the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, from the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. We will no longer sin again. We will no longer get sick. We will no longer get old. We will no longer die. But what is true of our status in heaven will now be the reality of the way in which we live. When Christ comes and takes us to be with Him. John says, we're not there yet. There's still more to come. And as a believer, there is a future hope for you. In other words, no matter the difficulties you're facing, no matter the difficulties from the outside of this world uh, that are, are opposing you, or even your own body that is dying, will one day be renewed. There is an end, my friends. It's like, it's like the, the POWs who are sitting in a room, as, as one pastor once said, and, and listening by, by a secret, secret radio that rescue is coming. Rescue is coming. They're not going to be there suffering. It's like, that's what John wants to say, is that the reality that Christ is coming, the reality that this is not our home, that ought to motivate us. It gives us a future hope so that we would live now in light of that. We will be like Him, he says. In other words, we will be perfectly Holy. We, we are positionally already because of the righteousness of Christ before God, Stand already holy. But in, in the meantime, while we're living here on earth, we are progressively becoming who we already are. Our incorruptible bodies, we will have incorruptible bodies like Him. Immortal, we will already... By the way, we are actually already immortal. Just wanted to let you know, you are already immortal. The question is whether you would spend eternity in heaven because you repented and put your faith in Christ or in hell in which the wrath of God that was poured upon Christ on the cross will be completely and continually put upon you for all eternity. We already are. John says, for the believer, we will, one, we will be pure, we will be perfect, we will be absolutely righteous, never again hindered by sin, to worship, to worship Him as He deserves. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're striving for. Now this is not saying that we will be little gods. When he says, like Him, it's not the same as saying we are equal to Him. But similar, not identical. We, we're not going to be omniscient. We're not going to be omnipotent. But yes, now we will no longer be, be in, in, in this sin-cursed world. We, we were delivered from the, the power of sin at salvation. And now we will be delivered from the presence of sin. We will no longer live in a sin-cursed world. So everything that you do everything that you say, everything that you think about, will always 100% glorify God. Imagine that. That, my friends, is the status of a child of God. That's your future hope. Because we will be just as he is, we will see him just as he is, see him rightly. 
One writer says that the transformation will make the redeemed perfectly holy and righteous with a pure capacity to worship and glorify God in total, satisfying, joyful, undiminished fashion forever. This, my friends, is a promise. But it also has not only a... That, that heavenly mindset, by the way, that heavenly mindset has a daily impact. It changes the way we live because that we, if we know that that's what what life is going to be like, then we want to be conformed to that even now as we are here before Christ comes. Notice in verse 3 he says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope is a confident expectation that you can count on, depend on, and live. It is assurance of being what we were saved to be in the first place. It is not wishful thinking because God has promised this in His Word. It is an immovable confidence in what is to come in the future when Christ returns for His people. We read in Romans 5 that Christian hope is not based on something undiscovered optimism, but found upon God's love, made known to us by the Holy Spirit, and visibly demonstrated to us by Christ's death on the cross. And so if you are here today, and you lack hope, my friends, consider what God has done in Christ to save you, and change you, and give you true hope that even though what, what you are going through may not change, You can count on the fact that God doesn't change. And therefore His promises do not change. And one day whatever you're going through will end. And it will be perfect. And will be used in your life for His glory and your good. And John says, when we have that hope, anybody who has that hope, purifies himself. Literally, the idea there is to to withdraw from something that is profane and, and really... So it's not just the the stopping of something that would hinder this kind of vision, but the pursuit of or dedication to commitment to Christ. And it is actually a habitual thing. And so the believer who's characterized by by having this confident expectation of seeing Christ and being conformed fully to Christ ought to motivate them to, to put away anything in their lives that would hinder their vision and joy that is found in Christ. And so learn from the Apostle John that often when you are discipling people, normally things are they're just discouraged. And they need true biblical hope. But not don't give them wishful hope. Give them solid ground hope. Give them the doctrine of regeneration. Tell them because you have been born from above, that guarantees that no matter what you're going through, God, if you're committed to honoring Him in the submission to His Word, will use that and will help you actually honor Him. And you can actually face that even if it never leaves and it does not change. Biblical hope is one of the best motivations for change. And so John, John is, again, in this middle of this letter, when he's probably the most black and white, if you can say it that way, black and white uh, of, the, of the letters that he's written, either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. <laughs> There's no in between. And he says, but for the believer, the greatest hope that we have is that God's love for us never changes. God's love for us leads to a future hope that one day we will be with Him. God's love for us leads to a daily impact in our lives. Notice he says, just as He is. John is very pointed. He doesn't say that Jesus purifies Himself. Rather, he says, Jesus is already pure. For the believer, while we're here on earth, this is God's progressive process of change in our lives. And immediately in verse 4, through all the way through verse 10, he says, this is how we battle against sin. Incredible. 
Incredible. John, you know where he goes to to help believers, encourage them to be faithful to the Lord, especially as they're, they're dealing with sin? He, he goes to regeneration. <laughs> he goes to the doctrine of regeneration. In verse 9, he says, No one who is born of God practices sin, literally continue, makes it a habit, unbroken pattern of sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You have everything you need in Christ to be able to honor Him. And so, this great love not only impacts what is to come, but it gives us an opportunity to worship our Lord daily with our lives. Somebody once rightly said, imitation is the highest form of of praise. And so, because it is true of who God is and what Christ has accomplished, we too will follow Him. And now we will grow as the rest of the letter will continue and we will, we will grow and, and resemble our Lord and we will have victory over sin, verses 4 through 9, and we will have love for God's people and, verses, and, and not just uh, affection for them, but actually tangible ways in which we physically help and love God's people in verses 10 through 18. And we will have confidence before God so that when He comes, we will not shrink back because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and have been loved with an eternal love. That, my friend, is the greatest hope for victory in our lives. And so that sets us up. When we come back next time, I'm going to start preaching through the book of James. And I'm looking forward to that. James is going to give gazillion commands. And I am looking forward for us to be able to bask in that. The motivation for doing what He's calling us to do is because of what God has done for us in Christ. So I look forward to that time. Pray as we prepare, or been preparing for that. And may God use that again to transform our body for His glory. Father, thank You so much for Your goodness, but in particular as seen in the love of Christ dying for us sinners. Father, I pray that you would give us these truths will be visibly in our thoughts and our minds as we encounter all the things that are before us. Especially when, when, when trials and physical pain just are overwhelming. When we are looking at the world and it seems like everything is just unraveling. Lord, you have poured out your love on us so that we will reflect that to those around us. And so I pray, O oh Lord, may this not just be something that we agree with, but that it would change us and transform us. That you would help us to be instruments, faithful instruments in your hands to do your work until you call us home. In your name I pray. Amen.